All right, Salt Company, what's up? What's up? Hey, 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 hey. Go ahead and have a seat. Oh, it's great to be with you. It's a great Thursday night, isn't it? Wow. Happy to be here. Hey, my name is Austin. I have the privilege of teaching the Bible here on Thursdays, and it's great to be with you. We're back, you know? Hey, we're, uh, we're in week two of our series through the book of Philippians. Drew brought the word last week. Fantastic. We're in chapter two tonight. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, why don't you go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter two. And while you do that, I've actually, I've actually got a question for you. This is going to be a major throwback. Have you guys ever seen the Magic School Bus? You guys remember that? Yeah. Big fans of the Magic School Bus. Of course. Of course. You know, rolling in the TV or the smart board. Did you guys have smart boards? I had a smart board. Uh, we love the Magic School Bus. But there's an episode that has particularly cemented itself into my memory. It's the episode called Inside Ralphie. Anybody know this episode? Inside Ralphie. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is a great episode. Okay, for those of you who don't know this episode, let me give you a quick synopsis. This is what went down in Inside Ralphie. Imagine this. It's broadcast day. It's broadcast day. The class is responsible for coming up with a broadcast, a show that they've got to they've put on for somebody else. I don't know who's watching this, but they need to put on a show. And unfortunately, Ralphie is sick. You know, he's stuck at home. He's got a bad cold. He wants to be a part of, of broadcast day, but he can't. And so Miss Frizzle, the legendary Miss Frizzle and the class, they hop in the magic school bus and they travel over to Ralphie's house and they've got this perfect idea. They're actually going to shrink the magic school bus and travel inside of Ralphie. So they go into his body through this like exposed wound on his knee. It's kind of nasty. But then they get inside of his veins and they work their way up to his throat Okay, and that's where they find what's actually going on. They're able to see, like, the bad bacteria, and they're able to see the white blood cells that go and attack the bacteria, right? And they're setting up these literal cameras, and they're showing us what's going on inside of Ralphie. And that's their show for broadcast day. It's, it's a legendary episode. If you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube. I watched it this past week. It was fantastic. <laughs> And uh, it's one that I'll never forget because I think it's got some great scientific genius, right? It teaches us all good things about what's going on inside of our bodies when we've got an illness. It's got bacteria and blood cells. But also, I feel like it's pretty applicable now because it teaches us the fundamental reality that there's more going on inside of us than would meet the eye. We've got symptoms of illness, symptoms of sickness, Symptoms of things that are wrong with us internally, but we need somebody to like go inside to diagnose what's happening and to broadcast to us what's the real problem going on here. We need to go inside Ralphie to see what's messed up on the, in on the inside. And similarly, we need someone to travel deeply into our heart and show us what's going on. Show us what the problem is really is. We've got symptoms like depression. We've got symptoms like anxiety and division and laziness and envy, like all these things that we can see on the outside. But what is the real problem? Okay, so what we're going to see tonight is that in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul is addressing the gospel going deep. In, in week 1, in chapter 1, 
Paul was writing about how the gospel goes wide, how the gospel is advancing, how even through pain and suffering, the good news of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, it's going out into the world. But in chapter 2, Paul is going to talk to us about gospel depth, about what it means for the good news of Jesus to go deep into our bones, to visit the deep corners of our hearts. Because what we know about us internally is that just like any cave, just like any tunnel, when you travel deeper, it gets darker. That when you travel deeper inside of us, it actually gets a little bit darker. A lot of us want to think that deep within us is like this innate good, that if we uncover enough layers, what we'll find is actually beautiful, pure, and virtuous motives. But unfortunately, that's not the case. What we see is when we go deeper, we find things darker. That's why the secrets in your life, the worst parts that you don't want to tell anybody, are still secrets. It's the dark stuff that is way deep within you. And so just like a cave needs an explorer to kind of shine a light on the dark parts of the inside of you, Jesus, actually, when he comes into your life, he wants to go into the deep parts of your soul shine a flashlight on what's really going on, and broadcast to you the real problem. Deeper means darker, but the good news is that Jesus is called the great physician, so he's the perfect one to do the job. He's the perfect one to go in and diagnose what's really going on. And just like any doctor, you don't visit him once you've perfectly healed yourself. You don't go to him when you're like, I'm good, I'm, I'm cured. No, you go to the doctor in need of healing. So tonight, we're just going to go to Jesus and say, hey, we've got deep stuff, dark stuff going on, and we need some help. And Jesus is going to give us good news from Philippians chapter 2. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to walk through three marks of gospel depth found in Philippians 2. Three marks found in Philippians 2, unity, self-denial, and hard work. We ready? Let's get it with number one, that gospel depth produces unity. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 2. This is what it says. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. It's a lot of unity. Is it not? We've got same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Here's what we know about the gospel going deep, is that it actually produces unity between believers. That the kingdom of God at its core, it's a unified community. But what does Paul really mean by this? Does he mean unified like preferences? Unified like uh, a sports, like we all have the same Favorite sports team? Same favorite music? Does he mean by unified that, like, over the course of a couple years, we're just going to kind of morph into the same image, we're all going to become unrecognizable, and we'll just be a big blob where we all look exactly the same? Is that what he means by unity? No way. Much better than that. The, the Bible's perspective on unity is that it does not mean sameness, but it means a common love. 
Unity does not have to mean that you look the same, you talk the same, or you're from the same place or the same background. Unity means that just like with any good friendship, we've got a common love. We've got one thing that all of us agree on, that Jesus is beautiful, that he's the greatest of us all. And so we just center our entire lives around him. And so the beautiful thing about the biblical view of unity is that we can be different in a million different ways, but we can all still find deep connection and belonging within the kingdom of God because we are all having the same mind, which is in Christ Jesus. That's why later in verse 5 it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The sign of a community that has been transformed by the gospel, that the gospel has gone deep, is one where people with all kinds of differences are united in treasuring and loving Jesus above all things. That's a unified community. Look at what the Bible says about heaven one day. Check this out. Revelation 7, 9 through 12 says this. It'll be on the screens. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you see how it said every tribe, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, the kingdom of God benefits from diversity. And it won't be complete until someone from every tribe, every nation, every tongue is represented, all coming together under the same roof saying, I believe that Jesus is worthy of praise. Biblical unity benefits from diversity, and it will be incomplete until someone from every different nation around the world is represented. What does that mean for this room right now? That means that the best way for this room to look more like heaven is to bring in more representatives from different nations, different ethnic groups, different languages, more people from different cultures. That's the best way to get this room to look more like heaven is to have more of our globe representative, represented singing praises to Jesus. Is that not something that you want to be a part of? Man, that sounds amazing. A unified community. It's the only movement in history where every single culture will be represented, represented and celebrated at the same time, perfectly. That's beautiful. I want to be a part of that. Different people, different roles, different backgrounds, different preferences, but one mind, one Lord, Jesus. That's what we're after. And I know that you want this. I want this. But something always gets in the way. Right? We've got this wish dream of community, wish dream of unity, but something always gets in the way. What is it? What is it that keeps us from embracing somebody that's different from us? What is it that gets in the way of perfect chemistry with people that have different backgrounds with us? I think our tendency is to want to point the finger at an external circumstance, right? 
Man, if that thing just changed, then we'd have unity. Man, if that person just did something differently, then we'd have unity. But Philippians 2 says otherwise. The problem is not outside, but it's inside. Let's look at verse 3 through 11 and see what Paul says about the problem within us. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Gospel depth produces self-denial. Paul puts a spotlight on this right away, that the enemy of unity is not diversity, but the enemy of unity is selfish ambition and conceit. So what's he talking about exactly? Let's define a couple things real quick. What is ambition? It's your drive. It's the thing that motivates you and pushes you to accomplish hard things. And so if you put selfish in front of ambition, what you get is being motivated by personal gain. Selfish ambition is always asking the question, what's in it for me? Selfish ambition is always doing things that promote you, satisfy you, and highlight your skills. Selfish ambition bows out as soon as something threatens your image that you've created for your life. Conceit is similar. To put it simply, conceit is self-importance. It's walking into the room wondering who noticed you. It's waiting to be served instead of finding ways to serve. Or it's choosing to serve but having that like secret hope that somebody saw it. That's conceit. The interesting thing is that Paul says that we should have none of either of these. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Shoot. Like, does anybody else read that and feel great about your performance right now? <laughs> no way. I can't read that ever and feel awesome about how I've been doing. Why is that? I'm sure you feel a similar way that the struggle to actually be humble, to consider others as more important than yourself, is much easier said than done. Why is that? I've got a quick thought for you. I learned some of this stuff from a book that I highly recommend to everyone. It's a short, quick read called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Big recommendation right there. But here's what Tim Keller talks about in that book. He says the ego is loud. The ego, the image that you've got for yourself, the perfect image that you're trying to construct, your ego, the thoughts about yourself, it's loud. 
It's the loudest voice in your head constantly, like, evaluating, how am I doing? What do they think of me there? How did that thing that I did make me look? It's the loudest voice in your head constantly informing you of your, perf- your performance. Your ego is loud. Why is it that it's loud? Here's the suggestion, that your ego is loud because it hurts. Okay, have you ever noticed your toe? Probably only when it hurts. You've probably only noticed your toe when you've been walking around because you had just stubbed it earlier. Or have you ever noticed your eyeball? Probably only when there's something scratching it. Or have you ever noticed like the inside of your ring finger? Probably only when there's been a paper cut on the inside of your ring finger and it hurts and you finally realize how much you use the inside of your ring finger. Maybe those things, they draw attention to themselves because they hurt. And so they're screaming out saying, hey, something's wrong. Your ego is loud because there's something wrong with it. Because it hurts. It's either like built on the wrong thing or it's, it's not operating the right way or it's about to burst altogether. Your ego hurts because it's loud. And here's three reasons why your ego might be hurting that it's empty, it's busy, or it's fragile. Here's what I mean by your ego being empty. Is that if you were to look at the contents of what you're filling your life with, there's not the right substance at the center. Our default as humans is to fill our lives with anything but God. We've been bent away from him, and so we would prefer to fill our lives with anything but what it was designed to be filled by. And so our ego, our self-image, it's filled up by the wrong substance. And so it's empty. And because our life was designed to be built around God and who he really is, but we've decided to fill our lives with something less than that, the thing inside of us is just rattling around. It's not actually filling us up the way we think it should. Our ego is empty. But also, it's busy. Think about this. When are you not comparing yourself to somebody else? Isn't this what the ego is always doing? It's always comparing yourself or boasting in a way that you are better than somebody. The ego is busy being competitive by nature, constantly searching for ways to feel better about itself. And so what's interesting about this is that when you break it down, your ego doesn't really care about having anything. It cares about having a little bit more than somebody else. You don't actually enjoy like the things that you're filling your life with. You just want to have a little bit more than somebody and that's what makes you feel good about it. Your ego doesn't care about being smart or athletic or attractive. It cares about being smarter or more athletic or more attractive than somebody else. And that's what fills it up. It's why you can feel super confident in one room and really insecure in the next. Because we don't have independent standards. It's always built on how can I be just a little bit better than the person next to me. It's competitive and it's busy. I've heard it said that comparison is the thief of joy. That pride actually destroys pleasure. 
because you can surround yourself and drown yourself with luxury to make yourself feel better than somebody else. But if you're drowned in luxury, will you really enjoy anything? You won't be able to see what you've actually got in front of you and enjoy it because you're just concerned about if it's more or less than the person next to you. And so to contradict that or to compare to that, I've heard it said that contentment is wanting what you already have. No need for more. Just enjoying what you've got before you. Isn't that what we want? Our egos are busy comparing and being competitive. And thirdly, they're fragile. Here's the, here's the reality of building your life around anything besides Christ is that it's fragile because we are in imminent danger of our entire world exploding. If you place your identity in athleticism, you're one injury away from shattering. If you place your identity in relationships, you're one breakup away from meltdown. If you place your identity in academics, you're one failure away from giving up. If you place your identity in your looks, you're 10 years or 10 pounds away from hating your life. Your identity is fragile if it's based on you. And the stakes are too high to settle for playing around with anything less secure than who God says you are. The stakes are too high to settle for a fragile ego. But this is the status if they're focused on you. And so we need a solution. We need a solution for the thing that's going on beneath us, don't we? We need a secure identity. This is what's going on in the dark parts of our heart. Here's what Paul says is the solution. Let's read again this section from chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, the solution to a loud ego is self-denial. To let go. To let go of your own image. To let go of your personal brand. To let go of the life that you want to try and grasp. And when you do that, you'll receive what you've always wanted. Life with God. Because it's not found in trying to curate the perfect life for yourself. Life with God is found in laying your life down, in serving other people, and counting others more significant than yourself. Jesus gave this perfect example for us, a perfect example for us. He emptied himself on the cross. Think about it. This is, this is the Son of God, equal with God, and yet he laid his life down. He put his ego to the side, considered you above himself. 
He did not take his deity as a reason to protect his image, but instead he used it to leverage his life for your sake. This is self-denial like we have never seen before. Nobody is like him. It's beautiful. So I have a little tip for you that the next time you get your feelings hurt, which you can't actually hurt your feelings, it just hurts your ego. The next time your ego is hurt, just say to yourself, like the wise words of an old toaster waffle commercial, I got a Lego, my ego. It might be the, it might be the corniest way to remind yourself to let go of your ego, but does it, I mean, is it not perfect? My goodness. I literally was going to say, let go of my ego, but it's, it's just right there. Let go, my ego. That's what you got to do. You've got to let go of your image for yourself. And if you want to actually enjoy life with God, you've got to put your own image aside and decide to lay your life down and serve. That's where he is. It's the upside down kingdom. In God's family, the greatest among us are the servants, the ones that put the ego aside and decide to get in the mud, get in the dirt, and love people. And what you'll find is that's where God is. God's not up the ladder. You don't climb up the ladder to try and get to him. You climb down the ladder and serve alongside him. That's where God is. Okay, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, dude, that sounds kind of hard. Sounds difficult and not exactly what I want to do right now. Sounds like that's going to take a lot of effort. Sounds like that's going to be a daily practice. Then you're thinking the right thing. You've perfectly guessed the third point that gospel depth produces hard work. Let's look later in the chapter to verse 12. This is what Paul says. Therefore, which means in light of what you've already heard. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This right here is an amazing verse that sums up the tension of the gospel the balance of the gospel, that it is you who needs to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but also you do that because God's the one working in you. So which is it? Do you just like totally relax because God's got it, or do you need to like earn it? Which one? Here's, here's the interesting thing about the gospel of Jesus, because it says that you are saved by God's grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, that you can't earn God's love, you can't earn his favor, you can't like somehow make him like you more. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it, and you don't perform for it. That grace is not something that you achieve, but grace is something that you receive. But so often what we do when we hear that, the dark part of our hearts twists this and starts thinking that if God's gracious, then we can kind of just do whatever we want. He doesn't super care anymore. Like, I didn't earn it in the first place, so he doesn't really care what I do with my life going forward. 
No need to take sin seriously because Jesus, like, did that for me. No need to take generosity seriously because God was generous for me. No need to take holiness seriously because Jesus was the only perfect human. No need to take wisdom seriously because God's got a plan for my life. This can be the way that we twist this, but friends, that's not gospel fruit. That's just passivity. That's just like avoiding the responsibility that's in front of you. And so when the gospel stays on the surface, we can start to think that we play no part. It's all God. It's all God in us. I just get to take a back seat and just kind of chill out. But just think if we thought about this, which is like everyday common practices, okay? Hear me out on this. If God is the creator of life, if it's all him, if it's a miracle that God creates life, then we don't need to have sex to make babies. Or if God's the one that causes plants to sprout, causes food to grow, then we don't really need to plant the seed. We don't really need to water the corn. Or if, it's, if God's got the miracle of science to make muscles grow, then we don't really need to go to the gym, don't really need to take care of our bodies. Right? We live in this tension every single day. So we don't need to overcomplicate it with Christianity. There is, there's a tension between work put in and God making the miracle happen. Both exist at the same time. It's tension. It's balance. So when the gospel takes root, the grace of God does not produce apathy, but the grace of God motivates action. Because work produces fruit. Muscles grow as you work out. Babies are made when sex happens and the right pieces fall into the right places. Corn grows as the seed is planted and nourished. Now with all of those, hidden within each of them, there's the miracle of growth. Like it's kind of hidden from our sight. We don't totally know exactly how it happens. It's a miracle. And yet we still put in work. There's still responsibility on our side. It's not magic. It's logic. We do the work and we trust God with the outcome. So here's a simple application for us. Man, if your life has been transformed by the grace of God and you want the gospel to go deep within you, do a couple things. Here's four things for you to do. Read your Bible. It's awesome. Is the greatest literary work of all time, and there are so many amazing things for you to learn from its pages. Number two, come back to Soul Company. Let's worship together. Worship in community. Be fed the word of God. Number three, like go to campus group and open up about your insecurity. Do the hard work of opening up the dark parts of your heart and saying, hey, I need some help. And the fourth way to do a work, just take practical steps to fight sin. To say no to what God says no to and say yes to what he says yes to. Take steps to fight sin and to take care of your body. This is work. It takes effort, absolutely. But if you do the work of worship, the fruit will grow because God is working in you. It's a miracle. But this is the important reminder. I just want to get this clear that Christianity is anti-earning 
but pro-effort. Anti-earning, but pro-effort. You can't earn the grace of God, but it does take effort to live out the truths of the gospel. So I just want to close with this, that the three marks of gospel depth are unity, self-denial, and hard work. But hear me on this, Salt Company, your pursuit of unity, your choice to deny yourself, and your eager, hard work, it's not a prerequisite of God's love, but it's a product of God's love. The reason you leave comfort to serve others is because Jesus left his comfort first to serve you. It's the good news of the gospel that Jesus, being the eternal son of God, equal with God, he left comfort for the cross. That he left the praises of the angels in the throne room to be pierced through his hands and his feet. That he left the worship in the throne room to put on weakness in the form of flesh. And he left his ego behind and he was emptied on the cross for you. This is the love of God that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He saw your need. He knew that it would cost him everything. And he said, yes, that's worth it. And my goodness, it was a glorious day when Jesus walked out of the grave in victory because it proved that the path to life was through obedience to the point of death. And that's what we've got in front of us. We've got a path of obedience to God, obedience to King Jesus to the point of death, but what's on the other side of death is glory. After the cross comes the crown. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for us. That this life is going to be full of hard work and self-denial, but on the other side of it is a reward because of what Jesus has achieved on our behalf. The cross comes before the crown. And so let's look forward, Salt Company. Let's look forward to the task that we have at hand to lay our lives down just like King Jesus did for us. So will we just fix our eyes on him, pursue him, pursue self-denial like he pursued us? Would you guys pray with me as we ask God to make the gospel deep within our hearts? Let's pray together. God, here we are. Each of us on a different journey, but all of us in the same spot tonight, we're just desperate for your gospel to take root deep in our hearts. We need our hearts to be healed by you. So, Father, I just ask simply that you would change us, that you would make us a unified community, that you would make us selfless people, and that you would make us joyful workers. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his perfect example. And thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for his resurrection on the third day. We join in with Paul and say yes, like in Philippians 2, that Jesus has the name that's above every name. That he's the greatest of us because he decided to become the least of us. 
to take sin on his shoulders and bear the punishment that we deserve. God, thank you. And so right now, we just collectively, we bow the knee and confess with our mouths, Lord, that Jesus is Lord, that he's the greatest of us. And so all praise belongs to him, all glory belongs to him forever and ever. And now we're just gonna worship you, God. Would you hear these songs and would they just be a sweet sound to your ear? Be praised in this place. Pray this in your name, amen.